Welcome to DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. I'm Alex Locke and I lead DACB's National Employment, Pensions and Immigration team. And in this episode, I'm talking to Udara Ranasinghe, a partner in our London team, and Mike Horrocks, an associate also in our London team. Hi, Alex. Good to join you on this episode. Hi there, Alex. Hi, both. Well, with continuing uncertainty in the news concerning the evolution of the COVID-19 virus, health and safety issues have been front and centre during the pandemic, affecting where we can work, what we have to wear to work, and who else can be present when we work, to name a few of the issues. Since the Public Interest Disclosure Act was introduced in 1998, whistleblowers have been protected if they've raised issues with their employer concerning health and safety malpractice. So, has the pandemic changed this landscape at all? We've certainly seen some differences over the past 14 months, and that's why we've chosen to look at the COVID-19 legacy whistleblowing in this fifth lawcast in our series on the COVID-19 legacy on employment-related issues. In this lawcast, we're going to look at three issues. First of all, the impact of increased health and safety concerns on whistleblowing. Secondly, the increase in applications for interim relief. And thirdly, what this means in practice on the ground for HR teams managing disclosures. We're assuming that all our listeners are generally familiar with the whistleblowing regime. But as we begin, perhaps Udara, you can briefly remind listeners how whistleblowing protection is obtained. Happy to do so, Alex. So whistleblowing protection is obtained when a, when a worker makes a disclosure of facts or information which tends to show one of five relevant failings or a deliberate concealing of them. Now, those, those five relevant failings uh, can be the following. So one is a failing in relation to uh, health and safety, um, but there are also others. So the other four are where there is a criminal offence, where there is breach of a legal obligation, a miscarriage of justice or damage to the environment. The worker must reasonably believe that their disclosure is in the public interest. Now that test has been around for quite some time and needless to say there's been a lot of litigation on all aspects of that. It's our experience that the public don't really care much about the legal technicalities of whether a disclosure is protected. They just want any malpractice dealt with so that people aren't put at risk. Is that your view, Udara? Um, I think uh, that's absolutely right, Alex. Um, we, we see this all the time. There are so many technical arguments it's possible to take on aspects of the definition of whistleblowing that it's uh, it's some would say a lawyer's uh, dream or charter but the employment tribunals really aren't interested in the technicalities of whistleblowing claims and the the, the technical points that we can come on to talk about uh, i think more importantly and fundamentally than that um, the press the public and workers and employees are not interested in technicalities and what we've seen certainly um, in the in the last 12 or 18 months, I would say, is specifically this issue around health and safety risks coming to the fore. And 
certainly in my 21 years of uh, practice, I've seen for the first time in the last 12 months, refusals by workers to come into the workplace where they regard it as dangerous. Okay, so are you saying that during the pandemic, we've gone from a worker conveying information that there's a danger to the health and safety of individuals to an individual being able to leave the workplace simply because they're a whistleblower? So it's it's unfortunately not quite as simple as that, Alex. Um, First of all, whistleblowers are protected from a detriment or dismissal because they have made a protected disclosure. And as I mentioned earlier, a disclosure relating to health and safety would fall within the protection. Um, But in addition, um, there's other legislation which protects a narrow uh, category of employees. So not workers who are protected by uh, the whistleblowing legislation, but simply employees are protected on the grounds of, uh, from dismissal, on the grounds that they have exercised a right to leave the workplace or refuse to return to it or to gather reasonable steps to protect themselves where they believed they were in serious and imminent danger. Um, And we often refer to those as Section 100 claims because they're under Section 100 of the Employment Rights Act. But in addition to protection from dismissal where employees have exercised that right to refuse um, to uh, attend the workplace or to take other steps to protect their their, their safety, where in addition to the dismissal protection, there is also a detriment protection under Section 44 of the Employment Rights um, Act. Um, and again, we refer to those as Section 44 claims, but we are seeing uh, an increase um, in those, and they are often being combined with whistleblowing claims because there's a, obviously a significant crossover or overlap Uh, between the two types of claims. Um, The key difference is that for the health and safety claims under section 44 and section 100, um, there's no need to meet a public interest threshold, whereas there is for um, the the, the broader whistleblowing claims. Okay, so what you're saying is there's much more scope for health and safety whistleblowing claims now, and that we've also seen health and safety protections apart from whistleblowing being used during the pandemic. Exactly. Okay, and Mike, if I can bring you in here to help us think about uh, the differences before we move on to applications for interim relief. Yeah, and I think the recent ET decision in Rogers and Leeds laser cutting illustrates this well. Now, in that case, Mr. Rogers texted his manager on the 29th of March 2020, saying that he'd be staying away from work until the lockdown had eased because he was worried about infecting his infecting his vulnerable children. A month later, Mr. Rogers was dismissed, but the tribunal found that he hadn't been unfairly dismissed under Section 100 because he didn't have a reasonable belief that there was a serious and imminent workplace danger. And there were a few facts that were particularly relevant here. First of all, despite Mr. Rogers' concern about COVID-19, he had himself breached self-isolation guidance by driving a friend to hospital on the 30th of March, the day after leaving work. Mr. Rogers' message to his manager also didn't include concerns about workplace danger, and he couldn't show that there had been any such danger. He also hadn't taken any steps to avert danger or raise concerns with his manager before leaving the workplace. 
And the tribunal also didn't accept Mr. Rogers' argument that COVID-19 in general created circumstances of imminent workplace danger, regardless of the safety measures an employer puts in place. And the fact that Leeds Laser Cutting had put in place safety measures in line with government guidance was certainly relevant to the tribunal's decision here. Listeners will be able to see that Mr Rogers wouldn't have been able to bring a successful whistleblowing claim here either, as he didn't convey information about malpractice, and his concern was the impact of COVID on him as a result of his family circumstances, not on the wider workforce or public, so he wouldn't have met the test that Adara mentioned at the beginning of the lawcast either. Had he specified wider malpractice, for example, by saying his employer wasn't following the government safety guidance, which affected more than just himself, he may well have been protected as a whistleblower and may have been able to bring a successful whistleblowing claim. Okay, so with the caveat that it is a tribunal decision rather than an EAT decision, it certainly highlights the differences. Um, So much more scope to bring whistleblowing claims and potential overlap with the Section 100 claims, but that won't always be the case. But certainly there have been more complaints, haven't there, Dara? That's right, Alex. We've seen from uh, statistics produced by Protect, an organisation that campaigns for better legal protections for whistleblowers, uh, some really quite interesting information. So they identified um, in um, March of this year, so March 2021, that for the first six months of the pandemic, one in five whistleblowers who contacted them were dismissed after they had raised COVID-19 related concerns to their employer. Now, fast forward to September 2020 and March 2021, and their statistics suggest that that figure has increased to one in four whistleblowers. So one in four people that contacted them in relation to COVID concerns were dismissed. Um, We haven't seen that quite feed through into uh, tribunal claims yet. Um, But I would imagine, uh, and and Mike can can fill us in on this, on whether that is reflected in the ET stats. Yeah, I think think the answer is probably, Adara, as we don't yet have the annual stats for the entire pandemic period, though in the stats for 2019 to 2020, whistleblowing claims were certainly up on the previous year. It's also worth noting that in the quarterly statistics from October to December 2020, 26,000 claims were coded as other due to the administrative backlog at the tribunals, which I know you spoke about in your last lawcast, Alex. It may well be that a good number of these relate to whistleblowing or health and safety concerns, but we'll have to wait and see once these have been properly coded in the next quarterly stats. Thanks, Mike. Uh, And to encourage our listeners, it's worth adding that there may be less fertile ground for health and safety claims going forward if the pandemic is becoming endemic in the UK as a result of the vaccination programme. However, the legacy is definitely that all workers are now much more alive to health and safety concerns than they were before the pandemic and prepared to blow the whistle on health and safety malpractice. Now, sticking with tribunal claims, let's move on to interim relief. I'm not going to assume that everybody knows about this, Mike, so perhaps you can give us a run through. 
Yeah, so in essence, employees claiming unfair dismissal for whistleblowing can apply for interim relief in order to continue their employment pending the final decision on their case. The test here is whether the underlying unfair dismissal claim is likely to succeed with a burden of proof on the employee at this stage. And while interim relief applications were previously quite niche, they're starting to become more common. Uh, the timing for making an application is tight, though, as it has to be made no later than seven days after the effective date of termination. Employees also need to present their ET1 before or at the same time as the interim relief application, although there is an exemption from the usual ACAS early conciliation requirements. Okay, so clearly a much, much quicker way for an employee to get a remedy than waiting for the unfair dismissal claim to be heard. And given the backlog that we've referred to at the tribunals, it's a pretty attractive route. Yeah, I think that's right. And the big difference for the claimant is that if they win the interim relief application, the focus shifts to the employer to reinstate and pay the employee, meaning they'll then have cash in their pocket while waiting for the full hearing. And looking at this in a bit more detail, if the likely to succeed test I mentioned is met, the tribunal will ask the employer if it is willing to reinstate the employee or if not re-engage them in a different job on terms that are no less favourable than their previous job. And if the employee unreasonably refuses new terms of engagement, the tribunal won't make an order. But if the employer refuses to reinstate or re-engage, well, the tribunal decides that a claimant reasonably turned down an offer of re-engagement, it will make an order for continuation of the employment contract. Now, this gives the employee the right to continue receiving their salary and benefits, as well as accruing continuity of service up to the full hearing without them having to carry out any work. So that last outcome you mentioned, Mike, could be extremely expensive for employers given the tribunal backlog and the difficulty in getting things to a hearing. Idara, are you doing many of these cases? We, we we definitely are, Alex. And just to touch on one point that Mike made, um, which is really this point around the continuation order. So it, the real kicker, as you identified, is not just that someone receives uh, payments and benefits under the contract, but if they subsequently go on to lose their case, there is no requirement for them to repay those amounts. And particularly within the context of the backlog, that could be quite a significant remedy on an otherwise meritless case. Um, so you can see the, the attraction of it. And as you quite rightly identified, Alex, uh, we are seeing, um, seeing um, an increase in these in practice, even though actually it is quite so difficult to succeed um, in practice on an interim relief um, application. And the reason for that is the point that Mike made, because it's, a re it's quite a high threshold that an individual claimant has to prove. They have to show that they've got a pretty good chance of being able to succeed at a final hearing. So that's higher than um, on the balance of probabilities, which is the usual standard in the, um, in the employment tribunal. But despite that, because of the points that, we, that we've discussed around um, the, the benefits of doing it, we absolutely are seeing um, an increase. Okay, so what are your top tips for employers then who may be facing these? 
Thanks, Alex. I think there are three top tips for dealing with this. So uh, the first one is um, consider adjournments and don't be afraid of them. And the reason I say this is because in theory, the, uh, the adjournment of a um, interim relief hearing should only be made by the tribunal in exceptional circumstances. But my experience in practice is that the tribunals will agree to um, an adjournment, particularly where it means that uh, it will result in a better uh, hearing of the interim relief um, application because the parties are better prepared. And often we found that the, the claimants or their representatives are happy to uh, agree to that adjournment because um, it, helps, uh, it helps them to, um, to have time to prepare as well. So don't be afraid to think about adjournments uh, despite what the letter of the law may say. Um, the second point is to consider putting in your ED3, your defence, to the claim in early. So as Mike rightly mentioned, um, an application for interim relief hearing has to be brought within seven days of termination. And then the tribunal will often list uh, a, a preliminary hearing on that application very quickly, often before the time uh, at which the uh, ED3, the, the defence of the employer, is due in. Now, because this is a summary assessment, of the merits of the case, often the employment judge will only look at the claim form and the defence, and therefore it really um, it really is very difficult for an employer um, if that defence hasn't been put in. Um, the, the the downside of that is, of course, you have a period of time um, given under uh, the legislation to put in your defence, uh, and normally a lot of that time is needed because. Um, it's, it, you may need to investigate the facts and properly uh, produce the defence, but um, you may not have the luxury of that time in an interim relief hearing. So just coming back to the point, do think about the importance of putting in a defence, even if you, if you can't obtain um, every single uh, fact that you would like and, and dot every I and cross every T, because it is the base document at which the employment judge will look at to assess the strength of the defence, um, and otherwise you may be put at a disadvantage um, when, um, when it comes to the hearing. The, the, th the third point to make, um, or the third tip, is really to make sure that you, um, you consider the wider case strategy, because the interim relief hearing is, uh, is what it says on the tin, it's a, a, an initial step in a much longer tribunal process. So, while it's important to deal with it, it's important also to think about how you deal with that wider case and that what you do at the interim relief hearing doesn't in any way prejudice um, the arguments or the evidence, for example, that you might wish to run or produce um, later on in the, uh, in the litigation. Um, so in some ways, it, there is a question to be considered early on about how much evidence, for example, is going to be produced at the outset and shared in advance of an interim relief hearing. Um, on the one hand, uh, for the employer, it may mean that you have a better uh, chance of defeating the, uh, the claim, but it may also mean that um, you are actually preparing the claimant uh, for your arguments. You're giving them a better insight into your case and a better way to actually argue their case. So it's, it's, it's really important to think about the right balance to be struck in terms of 
how you run the run the case and the evidence that you produce um, at that um, at that initial stage. Yeah. Okay. So although COVID hasn't changed the law, perhaps the combination of COVID and the tribunal backlog has made these sort of applications much more attractive. Now, as we draw our law cast to a close, let's think about what this means on the ground. We've said there's been an increase in health and safety whistleblowing disclosures. This may reduce as the pandemic becomes endemic, but given the spotlight that's been shone on health and safety, there's a continuing need for employers to have COVID secure workplaces and for them to be generally safe, given the increased awareness of worker and employee rights. There's also a continuing need to be alive to other sorts of disclosures that might arise, whether out of the pandemic or not. What what sort of disclosures might those be, Mike? There could be disclosures about furlough fraud, which would be a breach of a legal obligation in terms of the five failings that Adara mentioned earlier. And, and then there's also what we might call the usual kind of whistleblowing issues, particularly in financial services firms involving allegations around malpractice like insider trading, compliance issues and other serious non-financial misconduct. And the pandemic hasn't changed how these cases should be dealt with. And because of the tribunal backlog, we've actually had very little binding case law on whistleblowing in the past year. There was one helpful case from the Court of Appeal, Simpson and Cantor Fitzgerald, where the court looked at whether 37 separate communications amounted to a protected disclosure. The court found that they didn't, and the judgment reiterates that specifics are required and not just a kitchen sink approach. In particular, some of the claimant's communications were described as cryptic in the extreme. His criticisms lacked specific details of dates, times, traders and clients, and he was found to be evasive and failed to provide information to his former employer when it was requested. Okay, that sounds like some helpful clarity there. Idara, would you recommend on the back of this that it's okay for employers to ignore a sort of kitchen sink, unspecific complaint? Definitely not, Alex. I think it comes back to what I said at the beginning, which is that uh, the tribunals and the public aren't interested in technicalities and whistleblowing is always newsworthy. So it's still best to stand back and assess the totality of claims being made and deal with the, the, the substance regardless of the arguments raised by the whistleblower. I think it, in, in, terms of, in terms of other steps to take on the ground, Alex, um, while some of us are working remotely, there's uh, evidence, uh, there's some evidence that um, we're remote from whistleblowing failures and, and therefore a return to office working may actually see an uptick in workers passing on information which may be protected disclosures. I would have three top tips for, for dealing with um, receiving disclosures in practice. Um, first, always distinguish between uh, the disclosure and the individual making the disclosure. Often we see protected disclosures being made in the context of an individual who is subject to performance management procedures. The fact they, they are being performance managed doesn't necessarily mean they aren't making a valid protected disclosure. Secondly, identify the disclosure and have a clear plan for dealing with it. The best defence that I see to a whistleblowing claim is to show there is no link between 
any alleged detrimental dis dismissal and the whistleblowing. And the best way to deal with that is to show that as an employer, you've dealt with the protected disclosure transparently and properly. So have a plan for dealing with the actual substance of the whistleblowing disclosure and don't be afraid to ask the individual for specifics. And then the third tip is, of course, don't be afraid to deal with the individual. Just because someone has made a protected disclosure, it doesn't, it doesn't put them um, in, a, in a position where they can't be properly managed. But it is important because there is heightened risk to consider how you can mitigate that risk. And one way might be, for example, to create fire breaks between the disclosure and any performance management process. For example, by having different people involved in the performance management process uh, who have no knowledge of the disclosure to those who are carrying out the, um, the, um, the investigation into the whistleblowing issues. Thanks, Udara. Sound advice. Unfortunately, our time's run out. Plenty more we could have covered. In this podcast, we've looked at the impact of increased health and safety concerns on whistleblowing, the increase in applications for interim relief, and what this means in practice on the ground for HR teams managing disclosures. Just remains for me to say a big thank you to you, Udara, and to Mike for joining me on this episode. Thanks, Alex. Good speaking with you. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Mike.